Try again, September the 7th, 2014, lecture discussion number 167 on the Book of Romans, and welcome back. As everyone is now aware, uh, what are we now? We are two to three weeks from winter. That's right, winter. And here in Alaska, for our vast Internet audience, um, I, uh, I'll let you know that we only have two of the four seasons. We have winter, and we have really winter. What you folks in the South call winter, we call summer. It's always amusing, and this happened this this year for me. To, I had to, well, the, we, we all know Matt, and Matt had a friend come up, Mary Lynn, and she asked a question. She's from California. She come she came up and visited in what she thought was summer, and she asked a delightful question: Why does it rain <laughs> the summer? It's supposed to rain in the summer. And uh, does it always snow in May? You know, that was a, uh, and I told her no, not always, just mostly. Like nine out of ten Mays, it's going to snow. Same for September. And they're stunned by it. And she was stuck on the rain. She asked again, why does it rain in the summer? She's in Sacramento. In Sacramento, it does not rain. There's no rain. Summer means no rain and 115 degrees in some days. It's brutal. I can't believe anybody lives there. That goes back to that discussion I just had with you about fuel. If you don't have any fuel, you don't have any electricity, you don't have any electricity, you don't have any air conditioning, and Sacramento is not habitable, nor is Phoenix or Nevada. So they'll all be here. Because I responded to her. I said, because we have something that California doesn't have. We have water. That's right. That's It rains because of water. You don't have any. We do. <laughs> that's too bad for you, really. Uh, but that's the case. Anyway, uh, I don't know why I brought that up. Just because I thought it was funny. We're back in operation after hiding last week. For those folks of you on the internet, um, there was no lecture on the 31st of August, and so here we are again, or the 30th of August, whatever it was the holiday, and uh, we were hiding. And we left off uh, with what is essentially called Joshua's lament, and. Uh, because it is one of those things in the Bible that doesn't seem to make sense, and that makes it very interesting, of course. That means there's a tremendous treasure there. If anyone should have said what Joshua said, it should not have been Joshua. Of all the people that said what Joshua said, Joshua should never even be considered to be one of the people that said what Joshua said. Did that make any sense? If you're following me, worry about yourself. Okay, so he essentially repeats the accusation Joshua does of the wilderness generation of Israel. It's not word for word, but it's so close that it's stunning. And that which was said by the wilderness generation is said by Joshua. Shouldn't have happened. So that means what? That means something really cool is there. There's some little treasure that we have to dig out. It's Joshua 7, 6 through 9. And it's numbers, let me make sure I get it right, uh, 14, 1 through 5. If you compare those two, you'll go, wow, that's pretty much the same thing. And we expect it here. We expect the first generation of Israel to say those kinds of things. Uh, but Joshua, remember, he's a type of Christ. His name means salvation. Why, he, why is he saying it? 
And make no mistake, both in Joshua 7, 6 through 9 and Numbers 14, 1 through 5, the accusations there against God are borderline hysterical, if not outright hysterical. They're certainly contemptible. They're certainly irreverent, if not outright vile and profane. One more time to repeat, for Joshua to do it is a sign that something incredible is happening there. And at their essence... Each one of those accusations against God accuses God of being a liar and a murderer. And not just merely a basic liar, but somebody who creates for the purpose of killing uh, those whom he deceives, if that came through clear. In other words, he creates someone and his purpose is to deceive them and then kill them. That's the accusation made against him. Against God. So Joshua 7, 6 through 9, and Numbers 14, uh, 1 through 5 are records of the highest leaders of Israel literally screaming into the face of God, calling him evil and, and wicked, uh, extraordinarily evil. And pretty much, by the way, the same, they have the same, if you study the accusation, it's almost uh, exactly what the monistic evolutionary philosophers do every day in all major universities. They don't miss a day. Same with most of the media personalities on the monistic or evolutionary side of things. And, and those folks, by the way, never seem to grasp the irony of charging God with being evil while simultaneously insisting that he doesn't exist. And so that causes the often asked question to the monist. Why do you despise that which you declare to be non-existent? It isn't logical, but of course you can immediately recognize it never would necessarily be logical because it is. Uh, it's an emotional response, isn't it? And they respond, those that uh, at least the honest monists will respond or the honest evolutionists will respond. We hate you. We hate those who believe that God does exist. That's not true. Nobody will come out and say that they hate the Islamists. They don't. They don't seem, nobody, nobody, there's no, we hate the Buddhist chants going on. Major universities are not attacking any of the Eastern religions or the Middle Eastern religion. Who are they attacking? Who do they hate? Who do they despise? They despise, they despise the Christians. They despise the Bible. Now why is that? The why of that case, the why of that uh, is very important to answer. It's of profound value. As a quick aside, uh, this last couple of weeks while we've been hiding, I noticed during our hiatus that a very popular televangelist, actually not the televangelist, he kind of got in trouble, but it was really his wife of the very popular therefore very wealthy television uh, pastor, I guess is what more correct. The wife uh, of this man got into some doctrinal difficulty. You might have followed this on the news. I could ask you if you did. And also along with her, a very prominent leading scholar at a seminary um, careened into heresy as well. The wife decided 
that she would venture into confronting dispensationalism or dispensational truth, as some would call it, um, that was ill-advised because she really didn't even understand what it was that she was confronting. She was almost completely, totally under, unaware what she was saying and what it meant. And that gives me some sympathy for her. I also have some sympathy for the professor. I'll explain that in a minute. You see, there are two positions, really. One says that the purpose of Christ's plan is to save us. So the reason that Christ has come to the earth is to save us. It's, I have another name for it, but I'll just put save us. The other position, or the dispensational position, says that no, the purpose of Christ's plan of salvation is to glorify God. That's your choices. Dim's your choices. Now, Christ is God, so I could substitute God with the word Jesus Christ or with the word Jesus Christ. So, save us. That's the purpose. So, if somebody asks you in a classroom, for example, or a classroom setting, and this is one, get out your sheets of paper, put, uh, make an answer sheet, put your name in the upper right-hand corner, identify yourself, a last name first, and the date... And answer this question. What is the purpose of Christ's plan of salvation? If you wrote, save us, that would put you here. If you said, glorify Christ, or glorify God, then that would be option two. Now, unsurprisingly, the young, attractive, rich wife sided with this, the save us view. And she said it in a kind of a particularly blundering method, but essentially it ultimately ends up like this. The Bible is for me. And naturally, if you think the Bible is for you, then you're going to think something else. What What are you going to think? You're going to think that the Bible is about you and written for you. Is the Bible written for you or does it glorify God? That's your, see, the same question, isn't it? You could also say it this way, worship of God, which is what she did, worship of God is for me, she said. Obedience to God is for me. How's she doing? You should see your faces. I wish she'd stop there, but no. Once you dive into these kinds of subjects without any understanding, bless her little pea-picking heart, you're going to thrash about like a fish on a boat which we all here know about. I call this the self-focused or the me motive, the look at me, it's all about me, what do I get message, all the same, that permeates the contemporary megachurch paradigm model of today. The emphasis of these churches is that the purpose of being a believer in Christ is to receive benefits from that. And of course, if you're not receiving benefits, then what's the problem with you? Because it's your problem, right? Let's say, for example, you're in Iraq being beheaded for refusing to convert to Islam. Then that's what? Your fault. Just logical progression. Think it through. It must be a failure on your part to perform properly because you didn't receive any immediate benefit from being a believer in Christ. It is the save us position, or the me position, or the look at me, what do I get message, 
That's basic ancient Phariseeism. It's just repackaged with very pretty people and professional musicians. And why do they do this? Because it sells. That's why. Note that we call them what? I call them this. I called them a mega church. I did not call them a teeny church. This sells. This works. This produces lots of money. Obviously, the opposite view, the purpose is to glorify God, is not a big seller today, though clearly it's the truth. That's the truth. And it's the subject of Joshua 7.19. You might remember that if you've been coming the last few weeks. That is where Joshua says something to Achan just before Achan is to be executed. And we covered it at length the last few Sundays. He says to Achan, give glory to the Lord God of Israel. It's the glorified position. Ultimately, that is our task. Give glory to the Lord God of Israel. Achan does that, by the way. It's very important to recognize that glory, give glory to the Lord, is part of this ongoing debate throughout history, and no more so than now. Why do we give glory to the Lord God of Israel and not to ourselves? Ask it this way. Who else can I glorify and it not be sin? Only, only one person can be glorified. You see, lots of people take the position that God is some ego, egomaniac that demands that we glorify Him. He is the only one that can be glorified. What does it mean to glorify Him? How does he want glorification, if you will? How is he glorified? How is it that what Achan did, Achan's confession, how was that glorifying God? That's a very important question, and that's something that still remains on our plate, and that's what we're trying to resolve. Is bring it up today because it happened this week. That's the discussion we'll get in in the coming weeks that we're, we're dealing with this. Anyway, the test for these big program churches, these mega churches, is to simply wait. All you got to do is wait. You wait until the leaders shout something out. You wait until they declare the the preacher or the pastor, or in this case, the the pastor's wife, who she was. You wait until the leaders shout out. They declare without equivocation, without any ambiguity. Can't even say it. Ambiguity. Take a drink of medicine. When they say plainly that Jesus Christ is the Lord God of Israel, they do what Joshua said. Take, give glory to the Lord God of Israel. And the Lord God of Israel is Jesus Christ. When they say that, that's what you wait for. You wait for them to say that. Jesus Christ is creator God himself. That Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. The the word made flesh. The ancient of days. God always God. Jesus Christ is never not God. Never. You wait for that. How long are you going to wait? Try it. Go ahead. Just watch one of their presentations and just listen. And tell yourself... I'm not going to send money until I hear them say that. 
How safe is your money? It's going to be really safe. A little heads up here. They won't do it. They don't do it. Why don't they do it? Because if they were to do it, it would kill their revenue stream. Because people hate that. They do not like you saying that Jesus Christ is creator God. They do not like it. They hate people that say it. There's your answer to the bondus. Why do they hate people that say that? Anyway, most of these big churches rarely speak aloud even the name Jesus Christ. And if they do, they cloud it. They make it so you don't really know who he is. I don't have any problem with anyone saying that Jesus Christ is the Son of God because I understand Proverbs 30 really well. I know what that title means. I know it does not mean that he is anything but God himself. They're hoping you don't know that and most of them don't care. It's a way for them to, to devalue Christ. They do it very carefully. You have to understand it. There's nothing, again, wrong with the Son of God. That, however, means God. Equality with the Father. The Father and the Son are the same. Sameness. There is no rank here. But anyway, those churches are uh, intentionally Christless operations. Uh, let me write that on the board because I, I can't say it very well. Christless operations. Revelation 3, 16 and 17 will give you a description of them, as you know. And that leads me to the other example, the distinguished professor of the highly respected uh, seminary who was in the news as well last couple of weeks. He decided that uh, he understood Psalm 23 very well. That's surprising to me when somebody says they understand Psalm 23, because if you understand Psalm 23, then what does that mean? If you've got Psalm 23 correct, I'm really excited, because what do I now know if you have Psalm 23 correct? What do I know? Yes, I know that you have Psalm 22 correct. And I hardly know anybody that has Psalm 22 correct, so when I find somebody, I'm very thrilled about that. How do you do? He crashed in a spiral of doom. You know Psalm 23. I'll read part of it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. By the way, that's God's definition of a green pasture. Not necessarily ours. He's the one that is saying, what is a green pasture there? We probably have never seen one, especially those of us who live here. But I don't think anybody else has seen one post-flood. The ecology of the earth is dramatically different. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. What does that mean? I could replace the word that phrase, for his name's sake, with for his glory. It's the same thing. There's your clue as to which one is correct. You knew this was nonsense. But they fool hundreds of thousands of people every Sunday for millions and millions of dollars. If you had any idea the salaries of these big churches and the money they have and the homes they have and the airplanes they've got, it would stun you. 
at how much financial corruption is in these places and how they justify it. Hopefully, oh, let me go back. The professor looked at that portion of Psalm 23 and the rest of it. He looked at all of Psalm 23, the professor did, and he determined uh, after great Meditation, I assume, and consideration. He determined that those words I just read, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The professor determined that those are attributive, that those words are attributive to Christ. In other words, Psalm 23, he says, is said by Jesus Christ. That's Christ speaking. Psalm 23. Hopefully you can see the uh, problem immediately. If Christ says those words, then he's what? He's not God. Jesus Christ is clearly in Psalm 23. He is the shepherd. The Christ is my shepherd. Jesus Christ is my shepherd. Jesus Christ makes me to lie down and drink. Jesus Christ leads me beside still waters. Jesus Christ resurrects me. He's the resurrection and the life, right? Jesus Christ leads me in the path of righteousness. That's perfectly appropriate. There's Christ clearly in Psalm 22. He is the shepherd. He is the resurrection and the life, the restorer of the soul. He is the one who leads us through death. And Christ even says so. He even says in John 10:11, I am the good shepherd. He's talking about Psalm 23. He's also talking about Zechariah 11 and Zechariah 13, where I have the contrast between the good shepherd and the... Uh, Idol, and I, I should write that on the board, I don't do it enough. Idol, as in pagan shepherd. Because that's the Antichrist. And he is definitely uh, leading anyone who worships him into paganism, since he is a created being. There's your definition of paganism. Do you worship something that is created? Then that's pagan. Christ is not pagan. He is not created. If you make him created, then that's heresy. Psalm 23 is written by David, and David is writing about himself, and therefore, by extension, he is writing about the nation of Israel. Same as in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is actually the same exact format. Christ is in all the Psalms. He's in all of the Old Testament. He's in everything in Scripture, uh, but particularly here in Psalm uh, 22 and 23. In Psalm 22, he is the worm, the crimson worm. In Psalm 23, he is the shepherd. Psalm, and Psalm 22 is about the hind of the morning. So you see David speaking about either himself. And in Psalm 22, David doesn't qualify as the, as the hind of the morning. So therefore, the hind of the morning by default is the nation of Israel. So I can look at Psalm 23. I know I'm going fast. And I can figure out that Psalm 23 also has an Israel value to it, for lack of a better expression. Christ is not the hind of the morning in Psalm 22. And Christ is also in Psalm 23. Uh, two or 23, not the one who wants. He's God. He has no wants. He's not the one who needs restoration. He is the restorer, not the one in need of restoration. He doesn't need to be led. What needs to be led in the Bible? Sheep. He's not the sheep. He's the shepherd. It says so right in the text. Christ is the shepherd. 
It's his house that we're dwelling in. He has the rod and the staff. It's for his name, for his name's sake, for his glory. But obviously, not the professor. And not the young, attractive, rich, co-pastor wife. They don't see it that way. You see, uh, being confused about who Jesus Christ really is becomes an immediate, catastrophic, disastrous problem. And I kind of sympathize somewhat with the professor. I'll explain in a minute. Uh, Not so much with the self-focused wife. Uh, People asked me a long, long time ago, I shouldn't even say this. They said, you... um, Basically, I have led a life where I've abstained from alcohol. And if you've known my wife, you would wonder, you've been around a lot of things. Why is it that you abstain from alcohol? And my response has always been the same. I never thought it advantageous to be simultaneously unattractive and stupid. (laughs) So, I have a really difficult time with with people um, who have positions because of their ability um, to reflect in a mirror, I guess, for a poor way of putting it. And it isn't that I'm not sympathetic to her. I just have lower expectations for people in her position. Professor, I understand why he went astray. The church is so badly mangled, Psalm 22. So have the seminaries. It's so badly messed up now. It's so badly misunderstood. They don't even know it's about the hind of the morning. They have no understanding of the Israel aspect to it at all. They don't see that Psalm 22 and Psalm 23 are companions. And it's a natural result that a mistake at Psalm 22, if you make a mistake here, if you think that Psalm 22.1 is Christ talking about himself, then why wouldn't you think that Psalm 23 is Christ talking about himself? You would that's what the professor did. If he knew that Psalm 22, it, one, is not Christ talking about himself, uh, irrespective of Matthew uh, 27, 46, then he would not make the blunder that he made in Psalm 23. It's really that simple. And I feel sorry for him. Psalm 23 will fit beautifully with Psalm 22. Psalm 23 actually completes Psalm 22 and explains Psalm 22. All you have to know is that Christ is not the hind of the morning. And Psalm 22.1 is said by the hind of the morning and quoted by Christ while he's in the midst of the hind of the morning while he is on the cross. That helps you understand that he is the shepherd of Psalm 23. And not it's not attributive. I get asked this a lot. Why didn't God write his word, his Bible, so that it's easier to understand Why didn't he write it so it's easier to figure out? I can't figure it out. They'll tell me it's too hard. And that's the kind of question that that comes from the entertainment churches now. That question didn't used to be around. As we have progressed into an entertainment, entertainment, uh, self-focused, what can I get, uh, prosperity doctrine. I can't call it a doctrine. Uh, Prosperity, I can't come up with a word that I can put on the Internet. As that has happened, the pastors have stopped being teachers. They've become motivational speakers and self-improvement gurus. It's all how to lose weight, how to make more money in real estate. I mean, it's just absolute 
crud. How to, how to get more bookface friends, get more Twitter followers, blah, 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 blah. And all, just listen to them. They're not teaching. They're mo- trying to motivate. Uh, why do they do it? Because there's a lot more money and motivation than there is in teaching. And that's why no one understands Psalm 22 and therefore they just crater on Psalm 23. It's natural. See, ask why, instead of saying, how is it, why didn't he make it easier for me? Why? That's your question, isn't it? Why didn't God make the Bible easier for me to understand? In fact, if he doesn't make it easier for me to understand, I'm not even going to read it. That's what I get. get it all the time. Why didn't he make it easier for you to understand? Because the object is to what? Glorify him. That's the plan. He made it so that it glorifies him. Ask and said, instead of asking, why doesn't he help me understand it? Say, how am I glorifying God? Stop loving the simple Stop loving the easy Psalm 122. That's a good place to start. Pastors should throw off this self-motivating nonsense or motivational speaker nonsense, self-improvement, and start teaching the truth about the person of Jesus Christ. If the pastor's wife had a pastor husband that told her that Jesus Christ is God, she would have never said the purpose of our lives is to get stuff. But her pastor husband never tell her that. She doesn't know it, and so she says something profoundly stupid, and now she's all over the Internet being the stupidest person in the church industry. Congratulations. Husband, somebody should hit him with a bat. If if the pastor, who never says the words Jesus Christ, much less Jesus Christ is God, would teach about who Jesus Christ really is, who he, his, his real person, his real plan, his redemptive work, and shout out the, the deity, the, Christ, the godhood of Christ, the mean nonsense stuff that his wife threw out would die its deserved death. Just start looking. Is this, sir, is this sermon trying to teach me about Christ and glorifying Christ, or is it trying to teach me to, to want more stuff? And to, it's all about me, how I can be me and how I can be something. What's it doing? Those Christians who refused to convert to Islam and were beheaded. Did they glorify God? Did they glorify the Lord God of Israel? Yes, they did. That's the plan. Okay, we can start the sermon now. Am I kidding this time? Kind of. Because I like the way you look when I do it. It makes me laugh. <laughs> I do. I get a lot of email. Please film the audience. I always write back, no, they don't want you to know who they are. <laughs> we, we want to see their faces. Did I tell you that somebody made me a laugh track and a theme song and an applause? That's something that Ter- Teritha Thee and I are going to work on. She doesn't know it yet. Now she knows. 
But they sent it to me. And applause, they're worried that you're not laughing enough. That they need to augment. And so they made me a laugh track. And a theme song. I'm not, I haven't played it yet. I'm not sure what it is. I hope it's uh, Jerry Reed and Amos Moses. I've always, always had an affinity for Amos Moses. Uh, but uh, anyway. And the good, the bad, the ugly. Because, well, never mind which one's me. Uh, made that obvious tonight. Anyway. Uh, they just wanted to see what you do when, when I say certain things, because I mention it a lot. Joshua 7, let's read this lament of Joshua again, and we'll read Numbers 14, 1 through 5, so that you can see how it fits with the first part of the lecture. Then Jesus, <laughs> I said Jesus, which had been appropriate. Then Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth, and why did he do it? Uh, to give you the context, 36 men were just killed. We covered that two weeks ago, who these 36 are. Uh, what the 36 means numerically, how it is obvious that the 36 men are evil from the text. They are the liars. They are identified by God with the number 36. As I said a couple weeks ago, go ahead and get the numerology of that. Look it up. You can get it from anybody. Three sixes. God is telling you there's something really wrong with these 36 men, and there clearly was. If you missed that one uh, because you were enjoying what we call summer, um, I would encourage you to Go check it out. We don't have time to repeat it. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord. That's the ark of the testimony or the ark of the covenant. Either one's appropriate. Until evening. So he's there a long time. He and his elders of Israel. So they're all there. And they put dust on their heads. They are sorrowful. and They're in mourning for those 36. They don't know something about them that you already know because you came two weeks ago. They don't know that they're evil. They just know that they're dead. And they recognized, wow, they, no one was supposed to die. I'm getting ahead of myself. So now they're in this period of mourning. They put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us to the hands of the Amorites? To destroy us? Oh, that we had been content to dwell on the other side of the Jordan and never entered the promise. And I just stayed over there. Notice he didn't say what? Don't go back to Egypt. Stay over here. Not go back to Egypt. Like the other guys, the numbers, when we get to numbers, I took it off the board already. Oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off your name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? That's interesting. What shall I say when I'm dead? When I've been killed? He obviously felt he was going to have a little time to give a speech to... Canaanites there. We'll have to get to that in a minute. Now, let's go to Numbers uh, 14 and look at the contrast comparison here. That, by the way, Joshua saying what he said is unbelievable. It, 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 shouldn't ever, it, it shouldn't be something that he says at all, ever. Now, here we are. It, this is where Israel refuses to enter Canaan. Would Joshua know what they said, by the way, back then? 
Absolutely he would know. Why would he know? He was there. And he was in a powerful position. He was one of the two that didn't say it. He understood this better than anybody. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. Why are they weeping? Because the ten messengers or the ten spies came back and said, Giants, can't take it. We're all going to die. And all the people of of children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation said to them, the whole congregation, if only we had died in the land of Egypt or if only we had died in this wilderness. By the way, that's going to work out. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not have been better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. So I have in Numbers 14, 1 through 5, and I have in Joshua uh, 7, uh, 5 through 9, I have these two complaints, these two accusations, and I have the selecting of a new leader in Numbers 14. Do I have the selecting of a new leader in Joshua 7, 5 through 9? I'm going to make the cases I already have that I do. So that's where we left off at uh, Joshua, or at Lecture 166, by asking, what did Joshua really mean when he said what he said? Why did uh, you bring Israel over to Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites? Did that? Did you wonder about that? Who are the Amorites? I thought we were going to fight the battle of Ai. Thirty-six were killed here. Why does he bring up the Amorites? That's kind of interesting, don't you think? And again, what made Joshua say what he said to God? Clearly, the 36 dead. Yes. Is the reason that he said it because there's 36 dead men? Yes. How come he didn't reflect on that a little bit ago? Well, we just got through with the destruction of Jericho. That's good. Things went pretty well there, right? No casualties, no problems, did what God said, took the ark, marched around, shouted in unison, walls fell down, saved Rahab and her family, everybody else dead, everything went great. Yeah, there's that accursed or devoted thing, thing that we haven't quite worked out, seemed to have forgotten it, doesn't forget it for long, but he's in complete panic over that. He's forgotten about the manna. He's forgot about the miraculous crossing of Jordan, or maybe he hasn't forgotten it. And actually, I'll make the case that he hasn't forgotten it because he accuses God of being what? A liar. You've done all this stuff for us, and it's not been true. He's had an in-person meeting with Jesus Christ, God himself. And so did God do all of that as a deception? Is this one great, big, twisted trick? To lure you over here, to build your confidence up and then destroy you? That's what he's saying in Joshua, isn't it? Do I need to read it again? I will. Why have you brought this people over the Jordan 
to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Why did you feed us with the manna? Whoops, I lost the tip to my pen. I have to go down and get it. That was really easy. Okay, I'm back now. Why did you give us the manna? Why did you have this incredible crossing over the Jordan River? Why did I have this in-person meeting with you? Uh, why did you destroy Jericho? Was it all just to deliver us to the Amorites so they could kill us? That's his question. So did God do all of this as a deception? Is this one twisted trick? Did God all along intend for the Jews to be exterminated, extinguished by the Amorites? Again, why the Amorites? And I said, Joshua seems hysterical. He seems irrational. It's triggered, obviously, by the death of 36 men who had conspired to kill Joshua. He doesn't know that. Once again, by killing those 36 men, who got saved? Israel. Once again, how does Israel respond to God? You're evil. Israel assumed that God had lied to them for the purpose of killing them. That's what they think God has done. Lots of people think that. Lots of Christians think that. They think all the promises of God is a big trick. They think that salvation is some kind of document. And that's out for the Internet folks, I've drawn a document now on the board. And I am a brilliant artist, and no one will know otherwise unless we get video, which we're working on, much to my dismay. Is the video for anybody in Alaska? No. Would we video the audience? No. Maybe. <laughs> How can I reduce church attendance any more than I already am? That, that would be one way. Playing the trumpet would be another. Anyway, they, they, a lot of Christians think that the salvation is some kind of document. And, and that if you, you gotta get all, you got a whole bunch of places on the document that you have to initial. You know, you gotta initial there and there and, and here. And if you miss one, God's going to go <laughs> and tear it up and sorry you didn't make it. That's what they believe. They've come here. They don't stay here. Because what are you doing when you do that? You're calling God what? Evil. You don't, you don't capitalize your name on line 6, paragraph 8 on page 17. He's taking your salvation back and you're going to eternal Condemnation. People believe it. And by the way, the pastor, I should stop saying by the way. I know. I get emails. They count them. It's brutal being in this situation now. Lost my train of thought, so I need, I need soda. Mm-hmm. That's very helpful. <laughs> Ah, yes, pastors teach this stuff. They say, listen, you need me to fill out your documents right, don't they? They're the biggest churches in the world say that. You don't have me come over and do something, you're not going to make it. And by the 
That, that was a joke. I'm glad you laughed. That was hard. I, I had to think about that for a good 15 seconds. They will actually say that to you. You can get me to pray for them, your lost relatives, or your, your relatives that have passed away, just in case they're not saved. I will pray for them, they will say to you. Give me money. Fill this bucket up. And my prayer will get them saved. There's a monstrous church with a very good choir that says exactly that. That's how it works. And that is saying that God would put a salvation system together by which no one will be saved. What's that make him? It makes him evil. He won't do it. He didn't do it. You can rely on his promises. Keep in mind the content, but that's what Joshua is doing right here, isn't it? That's what they did in Numbers 14. Keep in mind the context of all of this that Joshua has just. The first generation he knows died in the wilderness because they refused to accept the full promise of the land, the promised land. They didn't want to go in. They, in fact, said, let's return to slavery in Egypt, didn't they? We just read it. Consider the meaning of that. Let me rephrase it. The first generation died in the wilderness because they refused to accept the promise. They wanted to return to slavery in Egypt. Think about the, the symbolism there. Now ask the most obvious questions. Did the first generation escape the bondage of Egypt where they were dying in slavery? Did they escape? Yes. How did they get out? God carried them out. says so. Did they want to return back to slavery and death in Egypt? Yes, they did. That's the obvious question. Did God let them? No. Think about that. He took them out of death and slavery. Did they want to go back to death and slavery? Yes. Could they? No. Why not? I like to say what? Couldn't find their way. He made them wander around for what? Forty years until they all did what? Died naturally. They never made it back to bondage and death, did they? That's just like the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's wife wanted to go back to Sodom. Did she make it? No. He buried her in what? Salt. Salt's a what? Preservative. She never did make it back. She wanted to go back. Lots of us want to go back to being what? Dead in sin. Will he let you go back? No. Why not? Because he's good. When you say these kinds of things that the document has to be perfect or that you have control over your own salvation, you're attacking the goodness of God. That is a horribly flawed position to be in. You aren't on quicksand. You're not even on water. You have nothing. You're, you're standing on nothing. Next. Had Jericho been utterly destroyed? And by the, 
not only did God not let them go back to Egypt, he made them wander around, and he what? He fed them with what? Manna. What's that? It's the bread of heaven, or the bread of life. So consider the meaning of that and what doctrine that you're really in now. You're in the doctrine of eternal security. Once you get uh, uh, the eternal security doctrine figured out as it affects free will, because it, there's a free will element here, do you have the ability, uh, do you have complete free will? You do not. You do not have the free will to do certain things. Defy gravity is one of them. Go try. As soon as church is over, we can all go on the roof. I'll go last. Next, had Jericho been utterly destroyed, with the exception of Rahab and her family? Yes, Rahab believed the two messengers, and she took the true token. It says so. She took the true token. The true token, clearly a symbol of Christ, because it's red. It's the same word, scarlet or crimson, that is the crimson worm, and the second goat that is for Azazel. And Jesus Christ says in Psalm 22, I am that crimson worm. So she takes the true token, which is Christ. And she's the only one that is not dead in Jericho. Now, we have 36 that are dead because they lie to Joshua and they say, you don't need to go send anybody, we got this. And and they are killed, those 36. And I make the case that there were 37 because, again, the numerology, there's a particular, that's just one element of it. I can do it without the numerology. I just throw it in so that you understand uh, how people get to these kinds of things. 37 is... A very, very different number from 36. Achan turns it to 37, and that's very significant as well. So, 36 are killed, whereas at Jericho, nobody had been killed. Nobody died. So now, the obvious question becomes, how many of the second generation of Israel, not the first generation, the first generation all died in the wilderness except Joshua and Caleb? So far, how many of the second generation has died? What do you think? Probably none. Can I make the case? Certainly, when 36 die, there's panic. I've coached a lot of basketball teams, a lot of softball teams, a lot of baseball teams. I've coached almost every single sport. I've coached women to state championships, which proves that I'm one of the greatest coaches that has ever lived. Wait for the mail to come from that. I can't. It'll be great fun. (laughs) There's this theme in Scripture with regard to this second generation. This all return to the camp theme. I'll read that really fast and we're about to shut it down because we're running out of time. Let me get that to that. It's 10.20. Uh, they're about to fight the Amorite kings. Then it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of the slaying of, of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they had finished, that those who escaped entered fortified cities, and all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makedah in peace. And no one moved his tongue against the children of Israel again. So that's uh, we're going to read more of that next week. But that is where the five Amorite kings, that Joshua says, are you going to let us be slaughtered by the Amorites? The Amorites are defeated, and the kings, the five kings are executed, 
and not a single person of Israel dies in that conflict. Not one. You see, that's normal. No one dies. When those 36 died, panic happened. When the five Amorite kings are killed and no one dies, then this question of what will people say is answered. No one moved his tongue against the children of Israel. No one moved his tongue against the children of God. Compare that back there to Joshua's lament. What shall I say? Well, no one will move their tongue. Did God deliver his children to the Amorites? No, God did not. God did the opposite. What will, then what will you, you do for your great name? What about glorifying you? That's what he is asking. What will the Canaanites say? Will they hear that you're a liar, that you're a devious, duplicitous, cosmic sadist? No. No one will move their tongue. And every knee is going to go down. Isaiah 43.25, Romans 14.11, Revelation 20.11-15. through 15. Every knee is going to go down. You do not have to worry about God's character. You never have to concern yourself as to whether or not you have signed your document correctly. I can do that for you right here. I can ruin your lives, as I like to say, especially when I do weddings or funerals. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God in the resurrection and the life? Yes or no question. Everyone who has listened to me on the internet had to answer that question. Let me repeat it. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God himself in the flesh? The Lord God. Do you believe that? And do you believe he is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe he's good? It's very helpful. As it turns out here, the dead 36 were proof of the goodness of God. Because they intended to do something tremendously wicked. And God resolved and did, in fact, intervene and present and preserve his plan of salvation. He prevented its destruction. It cannot be destroyed. He preserves it. He is the one who preserves. He is the Savior, the one who saves. And our salvation brings glory to him. It's noteworthy that Israel knew that 36 dead men was a cataclysmic problem. Joshua figured that out. We have death. Oh, no. We're not supposed to have death. And I've been purposely asking, why so much angst over these 36 out of 2 million? Well, because none were supposed to die. None. All were supposed to go back to the camp. Just like Joshua 10.20 says. But 36 did not go back to the camp. Why didn't they go back to the camp? That's an important question. I answered it a couple of weeks ago. What did I say? They didn't go back to the camp because of the beautiful garment. Next week, we'll take it up from there. This is where we have the tradition of the musicians coming forward. Why did the musicians come forward, they asked me.